Engage. This is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I am the one who knocks. I'm Jessica K. Richards, and I'm an academic who studies television. I'm Ashley Zanter, and I'm an academic who does cultural studies. And I'm Scott Nielsen, and I represent the patriarchy. And I'm going to be honest right now, I'm a little smashed. (laughs) So today we're talking about Alias Grace. We are talking about Alias Grace. And as always, uh, this is an academic podcast that discusses shows in their first season. So your light spoiler alert that we will be talking about all of Alias Grace. Uh, and you'll definitely probably want to watch this show before listening to this. So Also, Snape kills Dumbledore. <laughs> oh, that just hurt my heart. Okay. <laughs> but for those of you who may not have watched it recently, Alias Grace is about Grace Marks, who has been convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And uh, a group that's trying to quit her brings in a doctor who specializes in memory to figure out if she is guilty or innocent yeah so what'd you think (laughs) so i'll just start off here by saying you know I was a pretty big antagonist in the Handmaid's Tale episode, so if you followed uh, our podcast, you know we did Atwood's other work, The Handmaid's Tale. She is also involved with Alias Grace, based on her book, and then she was a producer. But I really liked Alias Grace in a way that I didn't like The Handmaid's Tale because I felt like the subtlety of the show, the way that it was much more watchable to me than The Handmaid's Tale, equally as beautiful, I would say, but just much much easier to digest for me as a person, that I, I really enjoyed watching this thing. I binged the whole thing in one sitting. Yeah, I I thought that this was pretty fantastic. What's What's kind of funny about that, though, is that, like, I really enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed The Handmaid's Tale, but I found, for me, this was far worse. Sitting down to watch this and experience this show made me feel so upset. Like, this show's basically the opposite of Netflix and chill. And so I... Hulu and celibacy? (laughs) and, And I felt really uncomfortable during the whole thing, you know, the the ways in which we it portrayed these sort of mundane versions of patriarchy that smashed these women and literally killed them, mm-hmm. uh, to me was way more horrific than sort of the fantastical elements that you see in the dystopic yeah. Handmaid's Tale, right? You know why? Because it's hard to imagine someone like, oh, I'm the only fertile person on earth and this religious person is going to rape me once a month to make me pregnant. But it's real easy to imagine some like creepy guy in a corner trying to take advantage of you. That happens every day. Right. And ex- and so for me, the the reality of that, the everydayness of it, um, that to me ended up feeling a lot more realistic. You know, there were elements of Handmaid's Tale that felt exaggerated and paranoid to me in a way that I thought sort of undercut its message. And and Alias Grace didn't feel that way. It felt very authentic in, in the ways that not only men and women interact, but in which women try to take power in a system that constantly oppresses them. Mm-hmm. And I found like the narration element of Grace speaking for herself throughout this story to be a really compelling element of that. And, you know, just generally a sense of dread and horror pervaded, for me, the entire 
six episodes. And I and I completely agree with you, but I guess the reason why I think this this works better um, for me than than The Handmaid's Tale is because you're right, The Handmaid's Tale is sort of fantastic and it's dystopic and the oppression is overt and it's noticeable. It's a governmental body that's literally raping women. I mean, that's what's happening here. And I think it's really easy for someone to watch that and go, okay, I'm doing pretty great because I'm not raping women once a month to try and impregnate them. But I think the subtlety, the groundedness, the mundaneness of the oppression in Alias Grace is so much better in trying to get the message across, the the oppression of women, the suffering of women, because, you know, it's not, oh, I'm good because I didn't rape anybody this month. It's, oh, I, I made unwanted advances. I took advantage of a power dynamic that was unequal. I, um, I... M- quote unquote misunderstood that she wasn't actually flirting with me you know those are conversations that are happening right now and so I think the subtlety of that is much more effective than the sort of grandiose dystopian horror of Handmaid's Tale right yeah. and and the same thing that it intersects more directly with our culture in, in terms of our history where we've been and where we are right now for me at least I thought that that was uh, particularly compelling absolutely absolutely one one thing that I thought was one of the more interesting aspects of the show, especially if we want to talk about like oppression by the patriarchy, um, aka represented by Scott, um, <laughs> uh, is is the the ways in which it manifests. So I think we have uh, oppression through class, right? That economically speaking, that you know uh, the lord of the house is able to abuse Mary because you know he has this wealth and position and she has nothing. If it's he said, she said, she's going to lose, right? But I think it's interesting, and this might be a more controversial thought, but I think religion is often a tool of oppression in the in the show in, in a certain way. Um, I, I think it's played in, in multiple ways, but one of them is that, you know, you're not meant to do this. You know, like the, the men in the... Uh, and the, the men in the show are utilizing the religion in terms of oppression, in terms of, like, you need to be subservient, this is a woman's place, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. And Grace has this beautiful moment, uh, I believe in the final episode, where she talks about people going to church. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you think that, that God only visits you on Sunday, that you go with your clean hands and your clean clothes and your best face, and you go into church, and then... He doesn't pay attention to the rest of the week. And I think that's fascinating to me in, in the way that she almost usurps her power back in, in religion. Um, well, and I, I felt like, you know, you're, you're bringing that element out. And I think there is such a strong thrum of that throughout the show. You know, she's a very literate character. And so um, the way that she intersects with the Bible and, and in fact, the poetry of her narrative voice to me was really fascinating and really compelling. And one of my favorite little things that happened in the course of this sh- series is that when Dr. Simon Jordan sits down in front of her the first time, they are far apart across the room. And as the story progresses, he inches sl- closer and closer and closer until he's like just in front of her face because of how captivating that she's become, you know, to him as a as a fixed, you know, a figure or an object, which is horrifying in and of itself. But for me, I felt the same. You know, that thread pulled the way that she talked about her experiences, um, particularly that lovely monologue about uh, what beds represent to women, oh, yeah. I thought was 
gorgeous, right? You and know, I'm, and it, it 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 even shows how the female perspective is so different. You know, I remember talking with my uh, fiance once on the phone, where she's like, "What are you up to?" And I'm like, "Oh, I just went out for a walk." And she's like, "It's it's midnight. It's you know twelve thirty in the morning." I was like, "Yeah." So and she's like, "You can't just go walking out alone at night." I was like, "Yeah, I can." And just like it, it didn't occur to me, right? In the same way that it doesn't occur to a man that a bed is a dangerous place, you know. Well, and and that was sort of what was fascinating to me about the show in terms of the ways that it it set up these complicated ways to look at the reality of an experience and and the interaction between two people and to try and determine what happened, Mm -hmm. right? So it's sort of blown out in this murder case, and this is sort of the area of detective fiction or true crime fiction or any of those stories that kind of tries to grab at and get at the reality of interaction and experience and say, like, Okay, how do we document? How do we understand? How does our memory mm-hmm. play into an understanding of the reality of the events that took place? And the show does a really excellent job of of placing itself pretty firmly in the 19th century with how it's portraying documentation and how we're perceiving criminality because, you know, there's several scenes of um, Simon, the the memory doctor, he's sitting in bed going over broadsides. Right, but going over these little pamphlets that they would hand out, chronicling a crime, chronicling the confession, chronicling the execution. They would have court sketches, and and there were just all these things that people would just go out and buy these so they could learn about how the justice system was functioning on their behalf, and and or to valorize the people that actually participated in that. You mm-hmm. know, uh, as they're talking about the re- rebels in Canada, the mm-hmm. stories that are told word of mouth. You know, between the characters in this piece that sort of go like, oh, yes, the rebels, right? That, to me, also sort of harken back to that tradition of these kinds of pamphlets and the kinds of ways that uh, criminality could be, you know, uh, appreciated yeah. within a culture or community as well, right? It, that she's an object of curiosity to them. Well, not even just to them, to us. You know, you, you brought up the point of, like, Simon inches closer and closer, you know, and, you know, he, he has this sort of sexual desire for her, but I think... I mean, the audience does as well. We get drawn in to the experience. We want to know what happened to her. I mean, and here's the thing. Sarah Gadon, the girl who plays Grace, is not an unattractive woman. Like, there is definitely, Mm -hmm. like, this alluring aspect to her. And there's this innocence that she portrays in the beginning of the show that really draws you into, like, the mystery. And we fall for that same... A uh, trick that, that Simon falls for, that McDermott falls for, that every male character falls for. The audience, interestingly enough, has the male perspective in an Atwood work. Well, and that's part of what I wanted to talk about because for me, like, it was so interesting to sit down with Simon as a character and kind of get his perspective and sort of grow into him as a person throughout this the first few episodes, right? Because, you know, there was these weird scenes where he was, like, fantasizing about her sexually, mm-hmm. and I was like, ugh, what is happening? And I didn't know how to, like, interpret what was going on in terms of character development. I was like, this feels really awkward and, like, ugh. And, uh, and it was fascinating to kind of see him as a character and, and think of him as, like, an intelligent, bright person who had genuine care for the people around him. He seemed to be aware. Um, he seemed to be paying attention. And he 
he even at one point gets basically sexually assaulted by a woman, right? Like he's asleep, he doesn't realize what he's doing and he wakes up and there's a woman on top of him that he didn't, you know, it wasn't, he didn't pick it, right? And so, so, it? yeah, well, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't, I'll take that one. He didn't consent, right, mm-hmm. in, in the ways that you, that he thought he was. And so, you, you sort of sympathize with him as a character. You're sitting there going, like, I really like him and I want him to be successful. And, um, and then the show does this amazing thing where it, it kind of finally twisted on its head so that that male, male narration that we've been holding on to this whole time actually gives us a sense of what it feels like to be the patriarchy, mm-hmm. right? It flips it on its head and we get this sense that like he he is exactly the kind of of problem that exists within the society. Men leaning forward to listen to women's trauma. Like, that's what he is. You know, he he loves it. He wants it. It makes him sexually aroused to see women in pain. And, ugh. Um, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and so for me, that's that final episode, though it didn't really clarify the specific events that took place that led up to the murders um, that were sort of the thrum or the central hub of the story, we, we learn that it's actually this thing and we're all complicit mm-hmm. in it well and that it that the doctor is not the only person who exhibits that behavior right at the very end of it she has a very strange engagement to jamie walsh who's a little red-headed kid who like wants to be her sweetheart and all kinds of stuff but that at ultimately ends up putting her in prison with his testimony. And, you know, there's that moment where they're in their room and they're just being normal. And then he's like, I'm so sorry I caused you so much pain. Can you tell me again what it was like in the asylum and the horrors you went through? Mm -hmm. And he wants to hear it over and over again. And at the end of it, he wants to be forgiven every single time. Right. And he wants wants to re-traumatize her. And and that's finally where we get the sense that Dr. Simon Jordan is actually the villain of the piece. It finally becomes clear as they're giving this monologue and we understand, you know, these two men are the same. They, yeah. They've experienced the same thing. And, um, yeah, but it, I, I feel like, for me, there were so many elements of this show that really landed and that added to that sense, um, to that quality. And part of it was just the day-to-day horror. You know, you, you look at the show and you can see... Not only are they making sophisticated arguments and interesting arguments about, uh, you know, the limited access to reproductive care that, you know, Mary needs to have because she's become impregnated by this, you know, the son of a wealthy family, but that, like, the details of her death and her experience become so real as um, Grace is, like, scrubbing her blood out of the sheets the next morning, or, you know, the sound of her body moving off of the mattress uh, as they peel her away. She's coated in blood, you know, and these ideas uh, that, you know, make reproduction and femininity and 
relationships between men, women fundamentally horrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that really landed for me, and I think what, what lends so much gravitas to that day-to-day horror experience you were just talking about, is how the show couches the experience of memory. And, you know, the whole thing is a retrospective. She's talking about events that have mm-hmm. already happened a long time ago. He's saying that she's already been in prison for, like, 15 or 20 years at this point, and, and she's recalling minute details about things. So there's this indication that her memory is really impressive throughout a lot of it. But then there's these little um, really disjointed but beautiful moments where, like, they're flashing back to her in the asylum or they're flashing back to her seeing something, and it's just this little, like, half-second shot, and then it's gone. And it's sort of like, that's how we remember stuff. Random things come to the forefront of our mind and then they recede to the back just mm-hmm. as quickly. And and then sometimes we remember little details about stuff that seems so insignificant at the time. And then you look back and you're like, why did I remember that? And it's, it's so gorgeous how they put this narrative together by having her reconstruct things, but then also undermining the validity of those reconstructions by telling the same scene in multiple different ways where, you know, did she kill them? Because in this one, she's holding the handkerchief or in that one, McDermott's holding the handkerchief. In this one, she's in the the parlor and doesn't even know what's happening. And we don't know which one of those is true. Well, and I think that there's something to be said about the, you know, not just in terms of this show attacking specifically the patriarchy and and even its intersection with things like the Me Too movement, but the, the idea that, like, it's culturally relevant because it's trying to reconstruct the experience of reality. And it's like, okay, how do we as people perceive things? Where does our perspective come from? How is that created? You know, is it in the interactions that we have with other people in the ways that they tell us stories? Is it what's written down? Is it is it our sort of um, empirical approach that collects data and interprets that data and looks for, you know, facts as the center of a story? And so the, the way that they play with Grace's memory, and not only that, but even the elements of the spiritual that sort of are laced throughout this entire show, right? You have, um, you know, these predictive moments like her mother seeing the crows above the shipyard and going like, I'm going to die, and then she does. And you have, you know, the predictions of her marrying a man with the letter J, and that comes to pass, right? Like these these things that you would think that don't really have any place in that, that make reality ambiguous and complicated and difficult to put our hands on or to understand. Um, for me, that was really compelling and and great. Well, and it's almost like that ability. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of times, those those talents are given to women, right? With the, with, I think the notable exception being Jeremiah the peddler, who reads hands and can maybe hypnotize people. We don't know. That's ambiguous enough, but. A lot of times they're given to women, and it seems like Grace is using that ambiguity at towards the end of the series when she she met, might be possessed, might be playing everyone like a fiddle. We don't know what's happening. We don't know how much Jeremiah is in on. We don't know how much talking they've done before this big show that he's doing for the commission that's trying to acquit her. 
and then she has this long thing where you're supposed to believe she's possessed by the ghost of Mary Whitney. And Mary Whitney has been committing the crimes, not Grace. Grace has, like, she's developed a almost Alfred Hitchcock psycho-esque second personality that doesn't know what the first one's doing. Mm. And, um, and, and that, to me, is brilliant in a way because they've set up enough supernatural or spiritualism in the show to make that plausible but also really improbable. And so they leave us not knowing what actually happened when the whole point of the show is to find out what happened. Well, and then, you know, I think a lot of people get really pissed off when that sort of thing happens to them. You know, if you sit down to watch a true crime doc and at the end they're like, could have happened. And you walk <laughs> away and you're like, I can't believe I just wasted 10 hours doing this. I watch you know. But for me, the ambiguity in Alias Grace was actually the point. And so I think if you walk away from this show feeling frustrated, you've, you may have missed the, the point of the show, which is very pointed about how women eke out power. Yep. You know, and it's in the control of their stories, the way that they tell their stories. And so, um, you know, there's a really interesting idea towards the end that it's actually the veil, that ambiguity that gives Grace her power. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the literal veil that is over her. Um, and so, yeah, I, I found that it just, it engaged me on a number of different levels, not only from a feminist perspective, which I thought was really interesting, uh, but also in terms of it being a show that encapsulated the current moment where we're constantly talking with each other about like, wait, what's happening? I don't know. Do you know? I'm not sure. You know, and fake news. Mm -hmm. And it intersected with all of that and, and really got to the heart of some of those issues. And so I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I, the show, the show is doing so many things so well. But I do have one tiny gripe, and my tiny gripe with the show is that I think the pacing was not irresponsible. That's the wrong word, but too off-putting to work because yeah. the first. <laughs> this is where Scott's going to yeah. jump in finally. But it was well. You stop having compelling conversations. Sorry, <laughs> our bad. No, the the first several episodes of the show are really predictable. They uh, the doctor comes in, Grace picks up where she left off. We move to the next section of her life, and the pacing is is nice. You know what's going to come in each episode, and I know that Scott disagrees with me on this, and we can have his point in a second. But it holds until the final episode for me, until episode six, when all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, loose ends. We need to tie the loose ends. And it seems so rushed to me because all of a sudden um, Simon Jordan goes to fight in the Civil War, gets brain dead wounded, and is sitting there until he's triggered by a letter. And and then we don't know what happens to him. But he essentially goes mad from his experience right. Which listening to her memory. So typical of the genre of sensation and gothic fiction mm -hmm. you know like that's exactly what's supposed to happen yep. is that the people yeah. are trying to get so knowledge is madness in this right. but but they try to wrap up everyone's stories too quickly all of a sudden grace is engaged to jamie and now they're old and now they have horses and a dog and now she's knitting a quilt and now it's over and and it just it's it didn't leave me feeling like they finished the story with with what it deserved sure i i have pacing concerns but they're different my pacing concerns is that this should be a two-hour movie it didn't need to be six 45 minute segments 
it, there's a lot of time where it meanders. And uh, don't get me wrong, I like a slow burn. I think it can be really effective in a lot of ways. I didn't feel like this was one of them. Uh, and I understand the idea of like building up the the story of her life, but I felt like they could have they they could have executed more tightly and succinctly. Um, and I think it's very jarring because you get five episodes of sort of like Ash was talking about, like this very predictable formulaic, like grace reports thing, the doctor, the doctor feels sorry for grace. We feel sorry for grace. The story continues. Anna Paquin is awful. And (laughs) that's not really the podcast. I just don't like Anna Paquin. No, (laughs) no, but yeah, Nancy is, is just an awful, awful woman, right? Um, Treats grace terribly, but what is really, it's interesting, but I think it's also jarring, and I don't know if it's good or bad, I haven't decided yet, is that we suddenly, I believe at the end of episode five or the beginning of episode six, our our narrator, who has been trusty and so nice, and the one person that will talk to us straight this entire time becomes super unreliable. And it becomes like, okay, you, so you have been lying to us, these, or you haven't been giving it to us straight. You've got this weird multiple personalities or schizophrenic break or uh, trauma-induced madness or, uh, you know, a ghost did it, you know, where suddenly it's Mary and Grace are in the same body and Mary does all the bad stuff and Grace is like, I don't remember anything. And suddenly it's like the genre changes. It becomes this like horror thriller instead of this period drama. Well, so, okay, so a couple of different things. You had a complaint about the pacing in Handmaid's Tale, too. So I'm going to say a very similar thing that I said to you back then, which is that part of what the show is specifically trying to do is um, set us in the, the sort of machinations of a larger industrial complex that kills women, right? That, that the point is that Grace's experience spans decades, that her tribulation, that her trauma, that her terror has been ongoing in the terms of the system, and that its end is arbitrary or non-existent because she moves from one prison to another mm-hmm. throughout her life, right? So for me, the, the longevity of it is fundamentally part of that, and, and the, the storytelling elements uh, give us a sense of that. And I think the other thing is, you know, you mentioned that you felt like it switched from a, uh, you know, an interesting story about a cute lady that we liked into the horror show uh, towards the end. And for me, I felt like they gave us enough indications early on that Grace was an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Like, she would flash to experiences that she had throughout the pilot that were different than the words that were coming out of her mouth, right? Um, so they gave us some indication of that. In addition to the fact that, like, th- part of what was horrific to me and embodied horror was just the muck that these people find themselves in the poverty, in the the belly of a ship, in the darkness of that, in those experiences that amounted to a larger argument about how these kinds of uh, sort of interactions are laced through the patriarchy. And I, I just, for me, it felt, I can't tell you, like, there are probably not words for me to describe the feeling of grace floating silently through that house. You know, there's that moment in a couple of the episodes where you get the sweeping camera pan of her walking through every room of this experience that shaped 
you know, probably took two hours and shaped the course of her life in such a damning, horrific way. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like in some ways it's so interesting in terms of the perspective of a victim, you know, that, that those brief moments have a lasting impact that can't be, you know, pushed aside. And so I disagree with you that I, I think that the horror in the show is threaded throughout, that it's very intentional, and that we always know that Grace is lying to us. And that's part of what's so interesting about this man trying to get at her truth, mm -hmm. right? How uncomfortable, how compromising, how incapable we are of understanding that. And I, I feel like that maybe says something too, again, sort of intersects with the Me Too movement as well. And so, yeah. So I'm gonna give this one a straight up A. <laughs> like, I feel I like we all saw that like coming. A, yeah, no. a for alias Grace? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's awesome, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know, I'm gonna be me and I'm gonna give it an A minus. And the only reason is because I feel like, um, the the problems that the show had could have been so easily solved that I'm irritated that they weren't. I feel like the pacing could have been dealt with the uh, like the because of how rushed that last episode was. I I felt cheated, not because I was frustrated that I didn't find out what happened, but because I feel like the amount of time we've devoted to these characters, we deserved a little more in that last one. And I was and I I don't know. I can't get past that. Maybe it's just the freshness of how how recently I watched this show, but I I really. I really wanted that to just be a little better at the end than it was. So A minus. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a B. And and the reason I'm gonna give Patriarchy. it a B Patriarchy <laughs> is to oppress you. Thank you for finishing my sentence. Uh, I think but I'm gonna give a caveat with this B. And that I think um, one, I have problems with the pacing as well. I agree with Ashley's uh, argument with the pacing, I have my own feelings. Although Jessica's rattle your was fantastic, uh, a great point made. Um, but I also feel like I did. I didn't care. Like I, I ultimately like it didn't make me care about the characters. And I think maybe that's on. No, for those listening at home, Ashley's giving me a look like I just stabbed a baby cow <laughs> with a like jagged like blunt spoon um making yogurt um <laughs> now you should see the face anyway getting off topic um i just ultimately like i didn't it didn't like draw me in i, I didn't find myself like really invested in anything and i felt like be, that's part of the pacing um i also feel like the horrors and injustices are removed from me and like this is maybe a cop-out but uh, maybe like a lack of empathy but maybe because i'm male maybe because I am the patriarchy, that it doesn't have the same poignancy for me where with The Handmaid's Tale, I can recognize, yeah, no, this is bad. Like, obviously, like this, you know, religious oppression. I, I do think that interestingly, you know, even though the show is very pointedly about how sort of masculine identities are toxic, that a lot of the relationships are between the women. Exactly. And so and so I think, you know, there there's yeah. something Nancy's to the that. Nancy's the villain to Grace. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and you have crazy people like Will McDermott, you know, running around chopping yeah. people into pieces. But, you know, I think you're I think you're right to say that there might be some it might be more difficult. But yeah. I, I felt like 
of the shows that I've watched, this more effectively communicated some of the the tension and the, sure. and the pain that exists within those kinds of expectations that are put on women. Absolutely. Absolutely. So did the other shows you watched this week make you feel pain? No. no. Good. <laughs> <laughs> what did you watch, Jess? Uh, I watched Star Trek Discovery. Uh, so it's interesting because, I mean, I've, I'm a Trekkie. I've enjoyed uh, Star Trek f- from when I was a kid. So I was already going to watch the show, but Brian Fuller, uh, who I love and who we've talked about on other podcasts or episodes of the show, um, he did Pushing Daisies and Hannibal, which are some of my very favorite television shows, um, was the story creator for it. And so it's weird. Like it's it's uh, it's very different from Star Trek's past, and uh, I don't know that. Like I don't, I'm not sure I can say it's good yet. <laughs> uh, I feel like it's a little underdeveloped, and they clip along too quickly through plot. Like I, I need a little bit more, um, but it has a fascinating um, character at the center of, center of it. Uh, her name's Michael, and uh, she's amazing. She's incredible actress and the story surrounding her particular journey through um, Starfleet is like awesome. It's amazing. And so I've really enjoyed that aspect of the show. I think there needs to be a lot more development and it needs to clean up a lot before I can be like on the Star Trek train. (laughs) But yeah, so that's that's what I did this week. It was awesome. Scott, it was fun. It an was anime? really fun. I no, not an anime. <laughs> it would have been an anime, but Jess Jess had to tease me. Uh, no, I actually started rewatching the West Wing, and I and I don't know if that was a good thing or not <laughs> because the West Wing is is great. And it's it ma- so great, and it makes me feel so nice to be liberal. But it also like I was because I, I was showing it to my fiance who's never seen it before, and uh, we were just looking at it and we said oh do you remember when this is how government worked <laughs> like it, it's mm-hmm. it's really made me nostalgic for a time that was like a year and three months ago um <laughs> that subtle random dates not corresponding to anything but yeah no it, it does it, it it does inspire like i think when i originally watched it like six or seven years ago it was like yeah this is this is what government does and now it's like why this is what government should do yeah no so, bartlett for president right yeah. like seriously so i'm going to be scott this time i watched an anime yes <laughs> are you kidding me right no. now oh my god she gosh. watched an okay anime so I hate anime, and I like I've I've tried, and it's just to no avail. But my boyfriend really loves it, and he's like, "I'm calling in a card here, and you're gonna watch the show with me because I think you'll really like it." So it's called Seven Deadly Sins, and the whole premise is that there's this uh, nation that has been overtaken by corrupt knights who all have powers, and uh, and like there's demons and all kinds of stuff, and that there's this group of of knights called the Seven Deadly Sins who fight corruption but were disbanded because they allegedly overthrew the government when they actually didn't, they were framed. And I would say for for watching an anime, I did not hate it as violently as I thought I would. (laughs) Um, I did watch all of it, or all of it that's available on Netflix, and there are some really interesting character moments. I really like the incorporation of how each 
member of the seven deadly sins, their powers are kind of loosely couched in which sin they are. Right. And I think um, there's this really great pig character that talks that's just absolutely brilliant. Aww. So if you're going to watch that show for anything, go watch it for the little talking pig because that little talking pig makes my day. All right. No, I feel like that's a great way to end an episode. It's just truth to you're speaking pigs. right there. Yeah. Jess, now it's your turn to watch an anime and report on it. All right. I'll, I, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, thanks for being with us this week. I'm Jessica K. Richards. I'm Ashley Zanter. And I'm Scott Nielsen. And this is Universal TV. Make sure to check us out on Facebook or Twitter by liking us at University TV Podcast, or you can email us at University TV Podcast at gmail.com with your recommendations for future episodes.